correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, the podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Hey folks, what's up? Welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm here this evening with my good buddy Steve. Hey Steve. How are you tonight? Pretty good. Yeah, well, so am I. So, uh, <laughs> alright. So, well, we have a guest tonight. Yes, we do. But before we get to that... What's our podcast of the week this week? Our podcast of the week is going to be Order 66. So that's they? What, uh, well, you know, the little podcasters, and they, they don't have much of a following. No, I don't think no they've been doing it very long. No. no. Order 66, for anyone who doesn't know, is the, well, it is the podcast for Star Wars role-playing. The original goes back many years, even into the Saga Edition days, although they restarted the feed with the FFG edition in 2012-ish. GM Phil, GM Chris, GM Dave, and any and all things Star Wars RPG, check it out. Uh, there'll be a link to the feed in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And with that, we'll actually move on to our guest, who actually appeared on the Order 66 at one point back in the Saga edition days. And uh, so our guest this week is Owen Casey Stevens, who we brought on to talk about um, all this OGL fun that has been happening yeah. lately. <laughs> and just so that people are aware we're recording this on the 30th of january in case anything else crazy happens <laughs> between now and when this airs and owen and i were joking messaging earlier today that boy it was lucky that we ended up postponing this because nothing at all happened in between this week and last week when we were no. originally supposed no. to nothing interesting has happened nothing. in the past week on the ogl question no <laughs> so also for anyone who Again, doesn't know, Owen has been in the industry for quite some time, has worked for Wizards, Paizo, Green Ronin, Evil Genius Games, and runs Rogue Genius Games, amongst many other hats he has worn in the industry. And I thought probably brings a bit of perspective to what the OGL has done for the industry, because I think, you know, I got into gaming pre-OGL, but I think, you know, what, it's been 20-some years. So there's probably a significant element of the gaming community that doesn't really have the perspective of what it was like before. Yeah, uh, and it's it's sort of a mixed bag. It's it's done some good things. It's done some bad things. And I suspect, while well, you're right, there are people that have never known a English language tabletop gaming universe that did not have the OGL. Even now, of course, there are people who don't care, and it doesn't impact them at all. Right? People who are playing. Uh, Savage Worlds and Thirsty Sword Lesbians and Rifts. They're not impacted in any way by the OGL, at least in the broad sense. Or, you know, if they're playing Rifts in Savage Worlds. Uh, I have that too. <laughs> I, I think everyone I know who has Rifts also has Savage Worlds Rifts. I'm sure there are people that don't, but amongst the people that I, I communicate with regularly, Savage Worlds Rift was snapped up sort of in a heartbeat. So, yeah. I'm Owen Casey Stevens. Uh, I too got into gaming and even uh, in writing before the OGL came along in the '90s. Is when I got into game writing and I was doing articles for you know Dragon Magazine, which was the Coast had at the time, which had a stated 
uh, distribution of 100,000 copies per issue and was sort of the magazine of record for, at the very least, North American English language RPGs. And you could put an article in there or an ad about your game and people would see it. And that was all very, very useful. Towards the end of the 90s, that became, let us say, less regularly the case. The, the distribution went down. A lot of other things happened. TSR had trouble putting it out for a while, for example. And Wizards of the Coast bought out TSR. Wizards of the Coast was run by Peter Atkinson. And he wanted to do a new edition of D&D. Now, that seems like an obvious no-brainer to us now looking back at it in 2023. But he, Wizards of the Coast, bought TSR because they'd gone bankrupt. Their number one product was D&D. There were a lot of other role-playing games out there. There were a lot of people that felt that D&D was antiquated, that it was it was like malls or Radio Shack are now, right? Something that was once big and have since gone the way of the dodo. So there was a lot of research done on what made D&D popular and what was necessary for a successful new edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, there was a lot of stuff going on on the design side for third edition to try and update it and modernize it and make it able to do things that competing RPGs could do. There was also the marketing question of if D&D was, in many people's opinion, not the greatest RPG available at the time, why was it still, relatively speaking, moving big numbers? Because even when TSR went bankrupt, that was not necessarily because they couldn't sell a surprisingly large number of units. There were a number of factors that went into those decisions. And one of the things that they stumbled upon uh, was the idea of network externalities which is that D&D was not necessarily the most played RPG because it was the best or because people had a, a nostalgia for it or because of brand recognition, that it, it had become the largest network that the most people played. And since you needed multiple people to play D&D, if you had a group of five people and one of them knew how to play D&D and Champions and one of them knew how to play D&D and Vampire the Masquerade, and one of them knew how to play D&D and Vigilantes. And one of them knew how to play D&D uh, and Rollmaster. And one of them knew how to play D&D and GURPS. That group would end up playing D&D. So the open gaming license was conceived at this era as a way to encourage <clears throat> compatible products to expand that network. So that instead of people having a whole bunch of competing games and D&D was only one of them, especially since D&D would not be able to, third edition would not necessarily be able to tap into the existing second edition network. The rules were going to be very, very different. But a bunch of people would be putting out game rules that was all going to be compatible, all be similar enough that you could use it with one another, and that a rising tide would then lift all boats. That D&D would benefit from the fact that other companies, rather than making competing products, would be making uh, complementary products. And those other companies would benefit from the fact that they were getting to produce supplements that would be acknowledged and at the time in a way marked as compatible with Dungeons and Dragons. And that worked really well, at least sort of, for 23 years. Now, there was a second point here, which was that some of the people involved wanted to make sure that if you had another ESR bankruptcy type situation, your D&D could not get published, right? They couldn't pay the printer at TSR. The game, there were people that wanted to play it, there were people that wanted to write for it, there was a interested market, and no one could serve it, because the singular rights holder could not put out anything, for financial reasons. So, the other purpose of the OGL was to make sure that the rules would be open in perpetuity, forever. That, that, that there would one publisher going south would not be able to take the rules out of the hands of the public. 
And that was sort of the open gaming movement. And it was it was very much inspired by a lot of the open software that was going on in the 90s. And I first got involved because I was writing articles for Dragon Magazine, and Dave Gross, who was the editor of Dragon in, in uh, 99, wanted someone to be writing articles for 3rd edition D&D that would be ready to go as soon as the rulebook came out. So he needed someone that he could send playtest rules to to start working on those articles. And I was one of the people he picked because I'd written, I don't know, half a dozen articles at that point and tended to do a fairly quick turnaround. Now, one of the reasons I did a fairly quick turnaround is that I had devoted myself full-time to freelance RPG writing. And without a day job, even as an incredibly slow writer, I could crank out an article in two or three weeks. I wince at that now because I'm talking about, you know, one to 3,000 word articles, which needs to be my daily output nowadays. But at the time, I had no idea how fast you were supposed to write or how much people would get paid. I sort of assumed that, you know, you broke into the magazines, and then the real big money would come. Uh, and I can't, still can't answer that question as to when the really big money comes. <laughs> uh, 23 years later, I, I have certainly done better than the six cents a word I was getting with Dragon. But honestly, uh, I still frequently, if I'm doing freelance, I'm getting 10, 11 cents a word and sometimes five cents a word. So there was, uh, there, there have always been very tight margins in the tabletop. So when I was working on the playtest and playtesting third edition, one of the things I found out about was that there was this mailing list of people who were getting access to this license early because it was being discussed and shown around. And Ryan Dancy had an email mailing list from when AOL was the height of uh, communicating with people publicly online. And they let me have access to it because I was working on, on this freelance material for the, the magazine. And I got to see these conversations about, first of all, who didn't trust this? There were a lot of publishers with a lot of experience who felt that this was a trap of some kind, that, that Wizards of the Coast would get everyone uh, exclusively doing D&D-related content, and then they would pull the rug out from under them and everyone else wouldn't be able to do anything and they would have stopped their own lines. Uh, there were also people who thought that this was pointless and unnecessary because you can't copyright rules. Now, what a lot of people forget, because it has not been active for 15 years, that when the OGL first came out, it came with a second license that was available, which was the D20 system trademark license. That in addition to producing a OGL product that would use the 3.0 or later 3.5 system reference document as the core engine, you could use this license that you let you put D20 system as an official logo on your product. And that indication of compatibility was not as strong as being able to say Dungeons and Dragons. But it was official Wizards of the Coast logo, and some of the public certainly knew what it meant. And a lot of game stores and distributors knew what it meant. And that was important because if you're trying to sell things into distribution, uh, as a publisher, the customer really isn't the person you're trying to get to buy your product. Obviously, you want them to. No matter how excited the customer is, you need the retailers and the distributors, especially uh, at late 90, early aughts, to know what your product is, know how to sell it. So if you put this D20 logo on a product, if you one of the early things that they had were these little four page adventures that were four eight and a half eleven pages folded in half so it was you know four inches by eleven inches tiny little pamphlet adventures that would have like one map and twelve encounters but they put a d20 logo on it you could sell it point of sale at the register like like you find mints at a grocery store now and it used to be that if you did something like that People would look at it and they'd be like, well, what is this? What What is this for? What What is, is this a standalone game? Is is this an adventure for something I've never heard of? Because of that D20 logo, retailers could easily say, oh, that's a D&D adventure. 
did not matter that the pamphlet never said D&D. They could just say, no, it's D20 system. It's the same as D&D. It's a D&D adventure. It's three bucks. You're picking up the new core rule book. Hey, do you want an adventure to run tonight? Here it is. So there was an explosion of D20 compatible products. And that led to a thing called the D20 glut, uh, which came right after the D20 boom. But a lot of people cut their teeth doing that. Uh, a lot of people got a lot of of experience on marketing and writing and editing and writing art orders. And, and for a while, it was a good way for retail game stores to make money. They could buy whatever this month's wave of D20 products were. It would move off the shelves quickly, and then you buy the next wave. Now, part of that was uh, the OGL as intended, right? Get everyone behind this one product. There came a point where enough money was being made on D20 products that people started cranking out D20 products that, uh, how do I put this kindly, lacked the careful research into what would be good uh, development and editing. So the quality tended to go down. Mm -hmm. As the quality went down, uh, there were just as many dollars being spent, I think, on D20 products. They were being spread around a a larger and larger number of different products, so no one was making as much money on one thing. Suddenly there was a moment where retailers were buying D20 products and they wouldn't sell immediately, and that meant they have money tied up in inventory instead of being able to buy new products the next month. And all of this led to things like Wizards of the Coast, uh, or happened at the same time as, I don't know that it was actually causative, Wizards of the Coast pulling the Dungeon and Dragon magazine license from Paizo, which Paizo was originally spun off from the magazine division at Wizards of the Coast. So they 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 were the same personnel and managers from the magazine periodical department at Wizards. Wizards were closing it down. Started a company and licensed their games. Licensed their game magazines. They had the official Star Wars fan magazine for a while, and then that license got taken away from them after they built it big. And they had Dungeon & Dragon, and those licenses got taken away. So in order to exist, they started doing Adventure Paths, which were basically replacing the content that they had been putting in Dungeon & Dragon into a roughly magazine-sized, but much thicker stock softback product. And then they could go to their original mailing list and say, hey, we, we can't sell you Dungeon & Dragon anymore, but here's the same kind of content, or we can give you a refund. And they published those under the OGL. And for a while, Paizo was sort of the, the premier indie compatible OGL publisher. And everything they were making, they, they did their campaign world. I wrote for them the Guide to Absalom, which was a, a description of their big city in their campaign world. All of that was published under the OGL, originally with, with D20 system stamps on it, and supported the edition at the time of Dungeons and & Dragons. And those continued to be popular, uh, through the D20 glut and, and sort of the D20 collapse. A lot of other things happened at the same time that I think are relevant and important and interesting. Uh, for example, some Masterminds was created by, uh, well, it was created and brought to Green Running and then Green Running polished it and have done a couple editions since. But it took the open gaming license and used those parts of the SRD that were useful to it. So basic descriptions of skills, some feats, what the ability scores were, the some of the core math. But, for example, did away with hit points and instead had a toughness save mechanic. And it was a superhero game. So instead of classes and levels, it had power level, which was roughly equivalent to, to class level. You would just set a power level of a campaign. This is a power level 7 campaign. You're, you're doing New Mutant Styles character. Oh, this is a PL10 campaign. You're playing the Avengers. Oh, this is PL15. You're Superman and, and the rest of the Justice League. That game had the the DNA of D&D &D in it from the OGL and taken it to a very different direction 
very different style of play, a very different way of using the core game engine. Some other games that came out at the time that were noteworthy, Spycraft, uh, Spycraft. Spycraft came out in at least two editions, which was a modern sort of Mission Impossible driven game that that really had had its moment. Um, it's still out there, but it 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 is definitely past its peak. Uh, a lot of people did T20 versions of other games. Uh, Fading Suns had a D20 version. Redlands had a D20 version. There was Swashbuckling Adventures, which was Seventh Seas D20 version. And some of those did great, and some of them didn't do well at all. Other companies, like Privateer Press, came out and did a monster book. It was a, a D20 monster book, but it was set in their Iron Kingdom setting. So everything that happened with them since then, doing more books and novels and an entire miniatures game... That all grew out of this moment where they had this this first monster book that got them going and got them in the cycle. So even things that were not particularly D&D focused had their origin in this OGL, this openness. It's a time saver. Uh, the D20 system logo was, was a big carrot at the time. A lot of people talk about the fact that you don't need to use copywritten rules. And it's true legally, that you can write them yourself, but a specific expression of those rules is copywritten. So if you're trying to write a new role-playing game, having an engine where you can say, well, here they've written out a bunch of rules for creating a character and determining your ability scores and what skills are, even if I don't want any of the rest of this, just descriptions of like, this is a radius, can be a time saver. And as I said, the money in, in tabletop is often very, very, very tight. So being able to have that toolkit as a designer and a developer even beyond the compatibility issue, spawned a lot of lines and products that are, are still popular and being sold and people are doing things with. Then 4th Edition came along, and Wizards of Coast decided not to release 4th Edition under the Open Gaming License. Instead, they created a new license, the Game System License, GSL, which forbid you, if you are publishing under it, to also publish under the OGL. A lot of people in recent events, which we'll get to, I'm sure, <laughs> sort of describe that as the first time that they tried to shut down the OGL. And very important to note, how the GSL said, if you use the GSL, you can't use the OGL. No effort was made at the time to prevent people from still doing what they were doing under the OGL. There was no talk of revocation, no talk of deauthorization. The, the only issue was that if you wanted to support the new edition of D&D, you would, while using the rules for that, not be able to also publish under this different existing license. So that was a choice. It wasn't a popular choice. <laughs> not a lot of people decided to go with the GSL. And it wasn't a very effective choice because in most countries, but especially the United States, right? If I have like an LLC, that is a legally distinct entity. So if I want to be publishing both fourth edition material and OGL 3.5 material, all I have to do is create two LLCs. One is fourth ed incorporated and we do things under the GSL. And I can have all the same people uh, under different contracts working on different products with a different LLC that is publishing material under the open gaming license. But the biggest fallout of, and, and they canceled the D20 system license. I think that Wizards of the Coast felt that canceling the D20 system license, they thought they were taking away the number one benefit of publishing under the OGL. And it had been a benefit, but by the time they did it, I don't think D20 system loco helped move a single book anymore. In fact, it may have been harmful because of the D20 glut. They figured that everyone would want to have the current edition of D&D, so they thought no one would support old editions of D&D because they're old editions of D&D, and ed games don't sell as well, right? If, if I have a core rulebook 
and I declare, hey, we're going to do one adventure every year, that core rulebook moves more units. If I say, we're still selling core rulebook, but we're not doing anything else with this line. The public just isn't as interested. There are a lot of theories as to why that is. But So I'm pretty sure that at the time, Wizards thought, sure, there will be a few things happening with the open game license. Nothing, nothing that will possibly really impact the industry. However, at that point, Paizo was publishing their Pathfinder Adventure Paths. That was where most of their money came from. And Wizards would not show them the new rules. They did not, for quite a while, know... And originally there was going to be an open game license for 4th edition, then it was the GSL. For a while there was going to be a upfront fee that you were supposed to pay to be able to, to access and publish under it. And Paizo has a lead time. So they were coming up to the point where they're realizing they are dependent on Wizards of the Coast letting us publish under the new set of rules. If we're not going to do that, the old core rulebooks for D&D, the 3-5 rulebooks that we're currently making material for, will stop being available. And so the decision was made internally to put out their own 3-5 revised core rulebook that they would call their own game. That was the first edition of the Pathfinder role-playing game. And a lot of people have noted that that Paizo was really the first company to have the level of success they had taking a fallen edition of a popular role-playing game and creating a spin-off and support and actually taking that customer base. And the OGL was definitely part of that, that they could actually use a lot of the exact same language. And they could use a lot of the same concepts. Uh, while you cannot copyright the concept of a hybrid animal uh, or specific rules that describe how that hybrid animal interacts with people, the concept of a owl bear specifically could arguably be considered to be a character that is copyrightable. That Wizards of the Coast could prevent anyone else from using. Because of the OGL, Pathfinder was able to have owlbears and cloakers and magic missile and, and color-coded elemental alignment-themed dragons and specifically wizards and sorcerers and clerics and druids. They could have... They tweaked a lot of it and they made a bunch of improvements and they they, they put their own spin on it and, and fixed those issues that they thought needed fixing at the time. But the vast majority of first edition Pathfinder, especially early on, was really recognizably 3-5 D&D for those people who wanted to play that. And that kind of has changed the market forever. Because now there's 1st edition Pathfinder, they've moved on to 2nd edition Pathfinder, between those two they did Starfinder, which I helped create. And those are consistently in the, the top 5 or top 10 RPGs in the market since their release. So I'm quite sure that part of the current kerfuffle came about, because Wizards of the Coast was looking around and said, well, last time... We tried to prevent people from supporting the old editions. That didn't work the way we wanted it to. <laughs> so the only way that we can get the kind of support only for the version of the game we want and only in the way we want is if we tell people they can't use the OGL anymore. Well, I think it's also worth noting, not that anyone who you know was there at the time wouldn't remember this, but that fourth edition Dungeons & Dragons was a significant departure in design and play style from three, five, you know, I've likened it to, I, I felt it was an attempt to take what at the time was the phenomenon of world of Warcraft and the MMO and the cooldowns timers on everything and put that on a tabletop. And there were, I think a lot of people, myself included, who that just didn't feel right to. Um, I feel like if fourth edition D and D had been anything but fourth edition D and D, it would be considered a genius new RPG design. Probably not wrong. And I know a lot of people who, example, who went from second edition D and D to fourth edition D and D, skipping third edition and three five entirely, 
found it a very natural progression. Made perfect sense to them. I also know a lot of people who liked for making first level characters for fourth edition because your character could already do numerous interesting special things and the daily versus encounter versus at will mechanic was a great way to understand and implement powers. So it's worth noting that fourth edition was supposed to come with a built-in electronic virtual tabletop. When it was announced, Wizards of the Coast was saying that we're going to have this virtual tabletop. I don't think they were calling it that at the time, but you're going to be able to play online with your friends on wizardsofthecoast.com, and they were going to have you know, graphics of dragons, and, and you'd be able to build your characters, and the rules would be built in, and they had an electronic rule set. And having a set of rules that are easily translated without a lot of of fiddly human-slash-GM interpretation would be a great way to help code that into a 2008-era virtual tabletop. There are things I didn't like about 4th edition. Uh, I was not a fan of the fact, for example, that there was no distinction between a fear effect and telekinesis. Both were a push, and they moved the target away from you, so there was no description of the fear for that fear effect. I did not like the fact that as you gained in levels, you had to forget old cool powers to get new cool powers. So if you had created this iconic finishing move for your character, you had to leave it behind. I did not like that they moved away from a magic item system that made it super easy for a GM to develop several million different magic items to fit specific themes. They, they went back to a more second edition, this weapon does this one thing, this higher level weapon does this one thing. But they were trying to fix a bunch of balance issues, and there were certainly balance issues in 3.5 and 3.0 and, and in 1st edition Pathfinder. Some people don't care about that. Others do. I personally think that the marketing of 4th edition hurt it in many ways more than design. Literally in one of the early marketing videos, I have a bunch of people playing, trying to figure out how to grapple someone. In that official video from Wizards of the Coast, the players... Trying to find the rules, and they're trying to read it, and they're all getting bored, and someone says, I'll just stab him instead. They're like, yeah, 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 do that. If you were a fan of 3rd edition, 3.5, that really felt like a personal attack. They were saying, hey, this thing that you've enjoyed, it's stupid. This is bad. We've got something better now. Then they tried to have the, the catchphrase from that video be, the game is the same, when it was so blindingly obvious that the game was not the same. Couple that with, for instance, the gnome was not a available player character race at first, and they tried to spackle that over by having little flash animations where they had an interview with a gnome who's all excited that he's in the DMG now, and the gnome's going, I have a lair! For a lot of people, that all of that advertising just did not, not hit home with. And the way the game was presented in the player's handbook, the, the, the first 4th edition player's handbook, I felt sucked a lot of the flavor out of it. It made it feel very, very, very mechanical. I think they tried to course correct when they did the player essentials line. I know a lot of people who got into fourth edition with the player's essential line of books, which were smaller and lighter, and I believe softback, and they have a very different memory of fourth edition than most of the people I know who started with the hardback books. There are things about fourth edition that are brilliant. The the fact that there's a bloodied condition that if something's taken its half its hit points, it's now bloodied. A lot of game groups that use that as a descriptive term just because it used to be you would frequently have people try and figure out how hurt is a monster and you could get in debates about whether or not you could tell how injured something was. This bloodied condition meant that a GM could just say, it's injured but it's not bloodied, or yeah, it's been bloodied. 
and you could at a glance look at a field and go, okay, untouched, untouched, injured, bloodied. I now have basic information to make choices with. But I think the combination of the marketing and the removal of the level of support from their publishers that people had gotten used to for 3.0 and 3.5 and the competing game Pathfinder that was essentially uh, a polish 3.5, but the fourth edition was had a bunch of strikes against it uh, above and beyond whether or not the design was good. I think the design is brilliant. That doesn't mean that it will appeal to all the same crowd of people. When you're trying to move people from from one edition to another, you've got to either bring a bunch of people with you, or you got to pick up a whole bunch of new people. If you don't do one of those two, you're doomed. And fourth edition sales would have made any other RPG publisher at the time thrilled over the moon. Wizards of the Coast has higher overhead, and, you know, first of all, they pay better. Uh, Secondly, they've got more staff. Third, they're, they are the small dog in their department who's having to compete with Pokemon money, and not anymore, but at the time, uh, and Magic the Gathering. So their numbers just have to be bigger to make sense for Hasbro to keep selling a given line. I still think that there is a decent size of 4th edition players out there uh, who enjoy the game, and I know that having studied 4th edition has made me a better game designer, even though it's not my system of preference. But I had a friend that ran a 4th edition game, and I, you know, a GM, good friends, we had a great time, even though I would have preferred a different rule system. Well, no, I think you bring up a, a valid point, though, that had it been released as anything other than 4th edition D&D, it may have been received significantly differently because, and I've even said this currently, I think the both the biggest thing Dungeons & Dragons has going for it and the thing that holds it back from a, a game design innovation standpoint is the fact that it is Dungeons & Dragons. And so there is a legacy that they have to uphold because of the well, almost 45 years or 50 years, 74, <laughs> almost 50 years of history. Almost 50 years, right. Yeah, and when, when, when 1D&D comes out next year, that'll be the 50th year anniversary, which I'm sure is relevant to the timing. And of course, third edition broke with a lot of that legacy. They had an article called Sacred Cows Make the Best Hamburgers, um, <laughs> talking about what they got rid of that were, you know, sacred cows. They, I mean, when they did third edition, there were people that were flipped out because... Uh, you did not have multi-classing and dual-classing as two separate things. There weren't level caps for, for demi-humans. They weren't referred to as demi-humans. There weren't uh, that monsters used the same basic rules as as the heroes, right, on leveling and hit dice, etc. A lot of people saw that as too big a deviation from 2nd edition. So I think part of what they were trying to do with 4th edition was say, well, the hop from 2nd to 3rd went really well. Uh, the hop from 3rd to 3.5 it okay, but it confused a lot of people. So if we're going to do a new edition of the game, it should be really different. So there's no confusion. Different visual style, different layout, different cover art, graphic design. And the things that people are currently complaining about the most will prioritize fixing those issues. That naturally leads you to a very different game. The process in many ways for 5th edition was similar because 5th edition is very different from 4th edition. It is also very different from 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 3.5. But at a much longer playtest period where they could get people's feedback and find out what do people actually really care about. Which sacred cows are sacred and which are we willing to turn into delicious hamburgers? I think that is one of the reasons why 5th edition has been so successful. I also think it is a faster game to learn and... If you want a game, a tabletop role-playing game to have 
mass popularity, I think it's got to be there's a maximum uh, learning curve you can put on it. I think 5th mm-hmm. edition is probably just about on the outer edge of that learning curve for mass popularity. I actually think 5th edition is harder for people to learn if they've played previous editions of the game than if they're starting from scratch. I've seen people pick up 5th edition from scratch, no problem whatsoever. People who are coming from 3.5 or 4th edition or Pathfinder or GURPS are constantly looking for things they feel like should be in the rules and aren't. Because they aren't, they lose time looking for them, and that makes it harder for them to play. I think part of that, too, is also how the 5th edition books are laid out. I, this past Sunday, walked somebody through making their first character for it. And going through the book, making their first character, it made sense. But I know coming from AD&D and 3.5 and Pathfinder, the first time I picked up a 5th edition book, I wanted to throw it against a wall because I couldn't find what I was looking for. Yeah, I think that is a perfect example of another case where it's easier picking it up from scratch. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think it makes perfect sense uh, if someone picks it up and they're doing it for the first time. And I suspect we will see a lot of that data presentation technology. I think a lot of that we will find uh, refined in 6th edition as well. So all of that sort of brings us to, they, they did 5th edition, and 5th edition did not originally have anything under the SRD, and then they decided to release a SRD under the OGL, which had just the most basic rules for 5th edition. So for example, the SRD for 5th edition that was released under OGL 1.0a has one feat in it. Now the point of having one feat in it is that once you've done that, I, as a publisher, can say, well, this is the format for feats, so I can make new feats and match that. But because they haven't put all the other feats in the player's handbook in there, I can't compete with the player's handbook with my own player's handbook. So again, I think this is a direct response to the number of games, and, you know, I think 13th Age, Mutants and Masterminds, and Pathfinder are the best known now, but there, there were even more uh, 10 years ago. The number of games that had come out and spun off from basically a complete D&D game having been released under the SRD. Now, what's interesting about that is that what what happened, for anyone that wasn't paying attention this month, and there's no reason that everyone would necessarily have to just because this consumed every waking hour of my life, (laughs) that Wizards of the Coast declared that they were going to be doing a new open gaming license, which was originally going to be called, I believe, 1.1, and it leaked before they were ready for the public to see it, and it had a bunch of terrible provisions in it, but for OGL purposes, the most important of them was that it said that they were deauthorizing OGL 1.0a. Now that is some wiggle word terminology, and, and I'm pretty sure that the fact that they gave up on this plan is based on the fact that it doesn't actually mean anything. But as a brief explanation, GL 1.0a was supposed to be perpetual. It says it's a perpetual worldwide royalty-free license that gives you rights to publish under a license with this license's exact wording. It also says that you cannot add any terms to the license that are not included in the license. It also says that Wizards of the Coast can update the license, but if they do, you can publish material that has been released under any authorized license. Now, it is very clear from the people who were present when this license was written, including people that were literally involved in writing it, that what that phrase meant was, once we've released a license and said it's official, that license is authorized, and any time we do that, you can use any of those. Ryan Dancy, I've heard him say specifically, they chose authorized as a way to signal that it was not a draft. Mm-hmm. It was not about them being able to deauthorize. It was to say, yes, we have approved this. It is out. Precisely. 
they did not use the word irrevocable in OGL 1.0a because people weren't putting the word irrevocable in contracts of this time at the time. If you look at some of the Linux kernel open contracts and, and other open software licenses of the time, nothing in 99 and 2000 says irrevocable, or at least almost nothing. Because it's a contract that has no time limit, it's perpetual, it specifies how you have your right to be used under taken away from you, which is that you have to be in breach and fail to cure it. And it says you can't add any new terminology, and that if someone revises it, you can always use an old one. Wizards of the Coast even put out a frequently asked questions list in 2004. They have obviously not had on their website for a long time, but you can find it on the Wayback Machine. That goes into detailing things such as, hey, can't you guys just write a new license? And they say, well, yes, we could, but if we do, anyone can ignore it and just use the old one, so we would never have any reason to release a license that the community wouldn't like. Apparently, sometime last year, they found a reason to release one that the community wouldn't like. Their solution was to claim that they were deauthorizing the license so you would no longer be able to use OGL 1.8 because it was no longer one of the authorized OGL licenses. Deauthorize has no legal meaning. It's not a term that is already in OGL 1.0a, which is specifies you can't add terms to it. Even if it did mean something or was considered to be in there, all the authorizing part of the OGL 1.0a does is let me use other licenses. One can even make the case that even if you deauthorize OGL 1.0a, that does not impact my ability to publish things released under OGL 1.0a with other things released under OGL 1.0a. I just can't use it with any other license. It got leaked. I actually had was just looking at, at my Twitter uh, feed because I, I archived that. I had been hearing, I don't know, for a week that something terrible was coming. And I'll be honest, I didn't believe it. But people who had people they trusted giving them firsthand knowledge, but that's what it was secondhand by the time I got it, telling them that this massive change was coming. I put out a tweet. I believe on January 4th, that said, hey, if you do anything with the OGL, don't sign any new document about your OGL rights without running it by a lawyer. The day after I posted that, Roll for Combat, which is Stephen Glicker and Mark Seifter, I've worked with Mark at Paizo. Uh, he and I worked on Starfinder together, for example, and I've worked with and know Stephen Glicker. They were doing their Roll for Combat podcast and got a leak of part of OGL 1.1 from a specific person they know and trust, obviously have not said who, on the air. I started going over it on the air, and it just exploded from there. Then uh, Linda Cadega, who has a it does articles for io9 over at Gizmodo, they got a copy of the full OGL 1.1 and did a whole article over it. And I think it's it's safe to say that the community as a whole was not amused. I have not seen a pitch for changing how things are done be this unpopular since New Coke. Uh, <laughs> it it. It was the most universally decried thing I think I've seen in gaming. So uh, they decided that they weren't doing OGL 1.1, which they they had never publicly released, but we do know they had shown it to other companies. We know for a fact that they had had negotiations with it, with Kickstarter, for example, because Kickstarter mm -hmm. confirmed that they'd seen it and made requested changes. So Wizards of the Coast decided to instead do a... Sur or they released a 1.2, which wasn't as bad in a whole bunch of ways that I haven't even gone into, but still attempted to deauthorize OGL 1.0a. And they said that they were going to do a survey for two weeks to play test. And I realize you guys can't see me. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers to play test this license because that's the terminology apparently they were comfortable with. Although you don't play test a contract. Well, there is that. And so people started putting in survey results. And if you said you were a publisher, 
ask you specifically what you thought about OGL 1.0a. And this was like Edition Wars cranked up to 11 in some regards. And some people got nasty, which I think is unfortunate. And some people were specifically uh, calling out specific employees at Wizards of the Coast who had had nothing publicly to do with this project. And I know that people were canceling their Indie Beyond subscriptions, which early in the process, I'd said, hey, there will come a time where we will have to call for collective action, but I don't think this is it. And some other people did call for collective action, and I, I supported that because that appeared to be the direction it was going. And I was being told from people internally that that was, that was the thing that might cause Wizards of the Coast to give up on this plan. I'm an OGL publisher still through Rogue Genius. Uh, I've been working with LGL and building systems on it for more than 20 years. I have ongoing projects that are built on the OGL that have things like Bears and Cloakers and Magic Missile, and I cannot properly finish those projects without being able to publish new material under OGL 1.0a. So this was important to me, and, and it was my intention to to keep publishing until I got a court order. But a week into the survey, Wizards of the Coast said that they'd gotten 15,000 responses so far, and they were between 85 and 90% negative. So they were A, just not going to do anything to the OGL, not changing it, not not touching it, making no changes to it whatsoever. And they are releasing the 5.1 SRD to Creative Commons, uh, the attribution version of the license. And so a whole bunch of people had a whole bunch of plans that they made as emergency measures. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what comes from those. Paizo and some other people including Rogue Genius, uh, declared that we were supporting a open role-playing content license, or the Orc license. That is still being worked on. I am quite sure that Paizo is still going to begin publishing stuff under the Orc, but whether they will take the time to make a non-OGL version of Pathfinder 2nd Edition, I don't know. Clearly, that would have been what they would have done, right? They obviously, since they wrote, rewrote every word of 2nd Edition, not, a, not three words in a row were taken from the original SRD. As long as they remove concepts like cloakers and, and bugbears and blink dogs, they could do Pathfinder 2nd Edition with no link to the OGL. Obviously, the thing that they were going to do, it seems obvious to me, was to make that non-OGL, non-SRD version of their game and release it under the Orc license. I suspect that's still what they're going to do, but it's a huge undertaking. And, you know, they sold through eight months of books in two weeks. They currently won't have hardback copies until April, and, and those have to be just reprints of the, the most recent edition of the core rulebook. So if they want a non-OGL version, they're going to have to put a lot of resources into doing that, which would not originally have been on their schedule. I've, I've worked at Paizo. Their, their schedule is neatly planned out, depending on what department and what level of detail you're talking about, anywhere between three and 12 months in advance. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not designed to cram, hey, let's totally redesign this game to take out every single element uh, from this other intellectual property out of it. That's there, There's no gap in the schedule for doing that. That doesn't mean they can't shuffle things around, but it does mean they've got to be thinking very seriously about what this smart move for them is. World Press declared that they are doing Black Flag, which I'm quite sure they've been working on for a while, uh, which will be their own RPG. I suspect that will get released under the Orc. There are at least two open game efforts that I'm aware of right now that are a direct response to this. Uh, Darren Drader's doing the Phoenix product, and there's the Cool Name RPG, which will very specifically come up with a cool name for it later that, uh, full disclosure, I'm, I'm one of their consultants on. And Russ Morsey uh, at Ian World has declared that they are going to be doing an open license for Level Up, which is their 
fifth edition compatible rewritten from scratch RPG, which does not have to be tied to the OGL or an SRD. Well, I, I would say, I know Russ had announced they were going to go through that and change any terminology that could tie to the OGL. But as he put it, that's a one, a large undertaking. He said, but even more, and it didn't occur to me, but the even bigger part of that is as you change those terms, now you're indexing and you're hyperlinking and all your PDFs has to be completely redone. Yeah, it's 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 a thing. I, he's declared that they're going to do an open version of that game. So I'm confident that they will, and I think that is good for open gaming. And I think open gaming overall is useful. It is just plain daunting. As a, a person interested in getting into tabletop game design, we told, hey, if you want to have a commercially viable product when you're done, you need to start with the hardest thing that the industry has to offer, that is, write an RPG from scratch. Tabletop RPGs are interconnected. They are not all complicated, but they are all uh, complex in in conceiving them. Even if you end up with, you know, a game that says, hey, this is love and lasers. We've got two stats. One is love, the other is lasers. You still have to think about how will people actually play with that and how will it interact with a, does it have a game master and, and how much rules do I have to describe? And there are some really smart people that have successfully just grabbed themselves by their conceptual bootstraps uh, and created a game, and I'm impressed as heck with them. I started when Dragon Magazine would let me write for someone else's game as an article, and I had half a dozen or a dozen articles under them before I started doing any non-article design work. So that's how I sort of got used to it. But there's at least one generation of game designers now out there, a subset of that generation, who learned how to do game design by starting with playing with, modifying, building off of, adapting, various open games in addition to uh, the SRDs for D20 Modern, D&D 3.0, D&D 3.5, D&D 5.1. Uh, there's an open game license version of Fudge. There's an open game license version of Fate. There's an open game license version uh, of the D6 role-playing game that used to run the West End Games material. Mm -hmm. Those licenses being there means that someone can, rather than trying to, you know, design from scratch what they want. They can start with a framework and build on it and see what they want to do from there, learn from that experience. So I think that overall the influence of the OCL, open gaming in general, has been very positive. Where it may have been negative is stifling creativity that goes beyond exactly what D&D does. Mm -hmm. That is one of the reasons why I think in the long run, this moment where I felt tens of thousands of independent game designers fry out in pain and then we suddenly silenced. In the long run, I think this may end up as the best of both worlds in that we're going to have a lot of different open games and there's going to be a lot of material out there. If someone wants to make something that is compatible with 5th edition D&D or with Pathfinder or Starfinder or 13th Age or Mutants and Masterminds, that stuff is all still out there. But there's also a lot of people looking at, hey, what do I want to do that isn't just D&D? And those things are being made open. And the idea of openness in a game system worthwhile totally independently of the D&D accessibility and compatibility, I think has, has taken root some. And really look forward to seeing what people who start looking at game design now or in one year or in two years do when they see that they've got open game license options and they've got creative common license options and they've got orc license options, whatever, you know, whatever level up ends up doing, they've got as an option. There will be all of these different sandboxes with different colors of sand and, and different little seats and toys and springy horses and mechanical cranes to see what you can build. I think we're going to get some, and I've, I've pushed that 
analogy way beyond the point of usefulness now. <laughs> I think there's a chance that we'll get a lot of really good and interesting stuff that would not have happened in a less inviting, less fertile environment. Well, and I think, like, yeah, I think, yeah, because you're seeing, like, Chaosium has an SRD out now for the BRP system. Free League has one out for the Year Zero engine. You mentioned the Open D6 and so on. And I think the one thing, for as much as companies like Green Ronin, Cobalt Press, etc., made a lot of books, money, etc., publishing supplements for Dungeons & Dragons, I think the thing that was almost getting lost in all this was what about, you know, the... Dragon Turtle games with Carbon 2185 or the Spy game or the um, the 5e-driven Stargate game that just recently released. You know, any of these games that were built under the OGL, like you mentioned earlier, but weren't D&D at all, to me, with my understanding of what was slated to happen under 1.1, those lines were going to be dead. Or, or if not dead, it was going to take some significant reworking and twisting and hand-wringing that you might be risking getting sued by a, a multi-billion dollar corporation uh, to put out. Um, one of the things that the OGL originally was always supposed to be was a safe harbor. That Wizards of the Coast specifically said, hey, if you follow these rules, it won't come after you. So, yes, maybe you could write a, a you know, there had been Roll Aids and Mayfair, and, and for that matter, Wizards of the Coast had done the Primal Order book that were designed to be compatible with other game systems, but Palladium sued Wizards of the Coast over the Primal Order, and PSR bought out Rollades rather than and deal with allowing someone to have an independent D&D-compatible line going along. So even when you say, yes, technically this stuff is allowed, if you did it right, there was always a risk. I think removing that risk, allowing people to feel like it was safe, allowing, you know, three guys in a garage who really love their campaign setting about heroic fireflies facing off against evil slime mold in, in the backyard garden of fantasy um, and going, we've got a cool idea. We don't want to write a whole role-play game. Oh, we could do this as an adventure with just enough rules and publish it under D20 and feel safe. And this was all happening at the same time that, you know, PDFs were becoming more common. So people could, instead of having to put together for traditional print run, they could start selling stuff on, it wasn't originally available in in 2000, but not long after, RPG Now and Drive-Thru RPG came along, so you could sell PDFs. The barrier of entry was much lower, so home desktop publishing software got better and cheaper. Uh, and so a whole bunch of barriers to entry to being a small independent game designer or starting a career to try and be a mainstream tabletop game designer all started coming down at once. So it wasn't all just the OGL, but it definitely played a part in people being able to create their own uh, settings, their own source books, their own blogs, even. My blog, which I've been maintaining for better than a decade, has an OGL declaration as the very first entry, and I update it every time I need to put a new Section 15 in there. Having that feel safe, I think, has always been an important part of why the OGL was attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, that was my kind of general understanding of it, because I've never published anything, but it was, it was not so much about the because there is the, the debate about, well, can you copyright rules and blah, 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 blah. Well, let's be completely honest. Even through this whole debate around the 1.1, you had a lot of different people who either were or claimed to be intellectual property lawyers, all expressing rather different opinions, which leads to the, and not that anyone, this is a shock to anyone, but IP law is very, very murky. 
I mean, a, a lot of things, you know, the OGL has not been tested in court. Um, like EULAs have not been tested in court. There's a lot of stuff that is legal framework that binds together parts of our society that has never been tested in court. When it comes to contract law, ultimately what it means and what it says determined by federal statute in, in the U.S., uh, by federal statute and court case. So ultimately, it's like if you're depending on fair use, fair use has some guidelines and then a court case decides if a specific example of fair use is fair use or not. And most people don't want to have to take the risk that Hasbro is going to decide that they're gone beyond fair you, you thought you you could legitimately think I've done fair use, I've done my due diligence, I've talked to an IP lawyer, uh, I've I've read the the existing court cases, I know what the standards are, I'm sure I'm good. It does not prevent Hasbro from deciding you're not, deciding that you might not be and it's worth it to them to bury you in in fees and expenses of defending yourself in a lawsuit. And that is not, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on Hasbro in particular in that regard. Like, they're not necessarily the most litigious company in the world. But when it comes to any kind of IP and rights and corporations, corporation is an artificial intelligence. Corporation is not just a group of people. A corporation is a series of rules that people then implement, which means that if you've made a deal with a corporation, every single human within that corporation can swap out. A brand new set of humans can come in. Corporation is still legally the person you made the deal with, but all the people you talk to are gone now. The new group of people have a different opinion about what that agreement should mean. So I don't want to sound conspiracy theorist when I say you can never trust a corporation, but what I'm trying to say is you're literally making a deal with a series of rules instead of with a person. Because the person can be replaced, and you are still bound to whatever was written down with that series of rules. Well, thus the whole kerfuffle over the 1.0a deauthorization. It's very right. clear from hearing comments from Dancy and and others that were there in, involved in its creation that it, what its intent was. But as you said, with the case of a corporation, it becomes how is it legally defined, and and what do the people? I mean. It is possible that the people that made this decision had no idea that the original plan was that this would never be something that could be done away with. It's conceivable. Now, should they have known that? Yes, I 100% think they should have. But they're, they're at the high end, they may not be worried about the licensing deal that applied to one of their game lines 23 years ago. They just say, hey, why did this happen? Oh, there's this license. Okay, get rid of it. It's possible that they took a look at it and said, hey, I know that was what they intended, but we think they didn't actually go that far, so we believe there is a, a loophole that we can use here. If they knew all the details and they went forward with what they do, I don't consider that a good faith effort uh, because we, we know what the corporation was saying in 2004, and anyone who published anything after they put out that fact can legitimately say, hey, this contract is supposed to be a meeting of the minds, that's what a contract is, read the contract, and I read the company's official commentary on what that contract means, and I came to an understanding of what I was agreeing to. And, of course, when courts in the U.S. rule on contracts, if they were written by one side, they tend to, if there are any vagaries, they tend to rule against the people that made the contract because they had the option of being more specific. But to a certain extent, none of that matters right now. But I do think we need to think about what we're going to do as a industry going forward. Because <clears throat> while they've said they are leaving the OGL alone, 
they have very carefully not said that they don't have the power to deauthorize it. They have not, at any point, Wizards of the Coast has not said, hey, you were right, we couldn't legally or legitimately do this. They've only said, hey, we're not even going to try to. Which means, in five weeks, or five months, or five years, or 25 years, a new group may be the people in the building running that corporation, and they may decide that they've got a new legal theory and a new set of needs, and they might say, hey, we tried to deauthorize this, and we never said we couldn't, we just said we wouldn't, and now we're doing, you know, D&D 10th edition for the 75th anniversary, whatever, and so we're going to pull it. So I do myself plan to keep publishing under the OGL 1.0a because I've got projects I want to finish that need it. I also fully plan to support the orc. I think it, it, it'll be open for commentary long before we have to accept it, so we'll, we'll have feedback. It'll take time. It'll take polish. But I believe it's going to be a more secure, more sustainable product. I'm also looking at Creative Commons options. I haven't published something under the Creative Commons, although I'm working on one, I would say, literally as we speak, except, you know, not literally as we speak. But before and after this, uh, <laughs> today, it is a thing I'm working on. It is designed to work on the fact that that 5.1 SRD has, in fact, been released into the Creative Commons already, and that is, at least in theory, an irrevocable act. So I think it's a good idea for us, for every publisher to be looking at, do I need the OGL? Do I not need the OGL? Do I want to have an open game of any kind? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? I've been taking the whole, you know, this stuff dropped Friday that they were picking up and not pressing forward. Taking the whole weekend to think about it, and I still, I intend to release a more detailed thought on the subject. For the moment, to extend certain extent, everyone I talk to in the industry is just taking a moment to exhale. For three weeks, we've been holding our breath to see if the worst-case OGL apocalypse was going to hit and, and who would get swept away. And a certain kind of game becomes less popular, that can impact what support material is available for that game. If you go and buy a play map for a fantasy role-playing game right now, there's a real good chance that it is gridded out in one-inch grids. It was mm-hmm. not as universally the case in 1995 because some people used 25 millimeter and some people used three quarters of an inch and some people used hexes and some people used offset squares so they were set up like hexes but they were all straight sided and you might have miniatures with a one and a half inch base. One of the things that I believe that the OGL has done is standardize what is a medium sized miniature? What is a small sized miniature? What is a large sized miniature? What do I want as my 3D terrain? How does my WAP work together? Which dice am I likely to use? Do our GM screens called for? How should GM screens be oriented? Are we going to have some sort of initiative tracker? Are we doing initiative? All of those things don't have to have the games be the same, but if a whole bunch of them are similar, that means it is easier for someone else to come along and say, hey, we have put in this box two maps of a kobold vision, a kobold village, and a bunch of kobold figures, maybe some 5e stats, and you can buy that, and that's an actual encounter box that's available. You can buy that for 5e, but you can also buy it and you can use it for Pathfinder, or you can use it for Fantasy Age, or you can do, because there's enough similarity amongst all these game systems that that accessory has a larger market than he would if none of these things were compatible for one another. Yeah, I think, like you said, it, it has brought, even if things aren't as you just your your example that it's not expressly published for these other systems because of the popularity generated by the OGL, a lot of other games have adopted like as you said the one inch grid you know et cetera and then that does help the again it rising tide lifts all boats uh, 
if you don't mind, I've got a few questions we take from some of our Patreon supporters. We've only got a handful cool. of them. Bring them a in. couple of them are a little bit outdated, so I'll kind of skip those because they were written prior to the uh, massive announcement. What, what do I think it will take for Wizards of the Coast to back down? About a week. Okay. <laughs> well, the one was, you know, with things like, um, and this was in the time period when it was understood that the 1.0A was to be revoked, but, you know, it, uh, one of our listeners asked, with things like RPG Superstar gone, and at that time hooking yourself to the one D&D third party really looking like a losing prospect, what does the path to becoming a freelancer look like now? But I think that morphs, you know, we can still answer the freelancer aspect of that question at least. And also, they still have not addressed what terms they're releasing one D&D in air quotes under. Uh, and they're not releasing it until next year. So they're they're going to wait... All of this is going to be allowed to become as distant a memory as possible. I suspect the D&D movie will be out of theaters. Done. However much money it's going to be making made before they will talk about anything that they are doing with one D&D and licensing. That's why stick the fork in the electrical socket twice in, in one quarter. All that said, uh, first of all, Roll for Combat uh, has taken over RPG Superstar. Oh, okay. So uh, Paizo doesn't do it anymore. But you can't... And, and I don't know when they're doing it next, but they do have... Looking to see if I can find... Well, all right. Just go to rollforcombat.com and do a search for RPG Superstar. Um, they they do do RPG Superstar stuff periodically. Uh, a bunch of people got published in a bestiary, uh, the Battle Zoo. That is a thing that is, is happening right now. I think beyond that, there's a lot to be said for doing small products on either... GL or other licensed content. So maybe you put out a blog post or you make yourself a, a small PDF product or a blog or get involved in some of the community content programs on DriveThruRPG. So there is, for example, the Age Creators License that runs by Green Ranine, where they have some templates uh, and they've got a community on Discord and there are people who are willing to help you put together a Age or the Adventure Game Engine an age project for the age age creators alliance and sell it on drive through now drive through and green ronin take half of the sales and and you get the other half of the money but it lets you access age is not in fact an open system so that is how you you publish for it uh similar things are going on with brp uh they've got a, a there are a bunch of community content programs right uh, the advantage for those from my point of view is that Everyone I've looked into, every one of those community programs, has a Discord or a Facebook group or a, a website that you can find where there are people who have done that who are happy to help you put together your first products. And then you can show those around and see what what the reaction is, take feedback. That is one way to grow. The other thing is to find whatever game system you want to work for, uh, find the companies that are working on it, and contact the smallest company you can find that does something like that and see if they'll let you write for them. ISO, for example, will frequently, when they are getting people wanting to write for them, will see if those people have any credits with smaller companies. So Legendary and my own Rogue Genius and uh, Red Goblin, and there are a bunch of companies that do uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder content. The smaller the company, the more likely they are to be willing to give someone with very little experience a shot at something small. Then you get that first published credit, and then you can start trying to build that into more things. It's tricky. Uh, there's never been a clean, clear path 
to being a game designer beyond write some stuff and see how many people you get to look at it and constantly ask everyone to give you work and hope that eventually someone will. In one way, it was easier in my day because in the 90s, I would send a self-addressed stamped envelope via snail mail to Wizards of the Coast in, in Geneva, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, with ideas for Dragon Magazine articles. And they would write me a physical letter back, and I would write up the article, typed, mail it to them, and three months later, I would find out whether or not I had a contract. That's slow, but it was specifically a process where they expected people to contact them and want to publish things. It is a lot less uh, codified now, but it's also faster and easier to contact people. So I, I think you could do worse than find every single publisher that does anything you like, go to their website uh, or their Facebook or Twitter, figure out what their contact me info is, drop them a line and say, hey, I want to be a game designer. This is my level of experience. How do I write for you? And see what they say. Fair. And the only other one that really isn't kind of, you know, massively tied to, oh my God, what are we going to do? They're getting rid of, you know, 1.0A was, um, and this one came in uh, over the weekend after the big announcement, but basically was the Creative Commons release even something you had conceptualized as possible? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, it really wasn't. Uh, when they released a very little amount of stuff under the Creative Commons, which is something they're talking about doing for 1.2, I thought it was very specifically a stopgap and to get people to stop complaining about the OGL 1.0 way. And, and it, it is very clear to me that they did not do a careful analysis of what they were putting under the Creative Commons because things that they have very carefully kept from ever being open in any such way, such as the name Strahd, mm -hmm. is listed in there and Beholder and Mindflayer. Now, they don't have the stats or descriptions of what a Beholder or a Mindflayer or a Strahd is. It does now mean that if I want to do a game called Empire of the Mind Flayer, I can perfectly well call it that. I probably can't have those Mind Flayers be tentacle-faced psychics with giant flying snail ships from other empires that fight gith anythings. But I'm pretty sure that they would not have released Strahd's name into the, the Creative Commons if they had realized it was in there. I've heard a lot of theories about how this happened. Uh, one of them was that it was designed to shut everyone up so fast that there would be no lingering resentment so that this wouldn't get more press coverage, or at least not more negative press coverage, as the D&D movie approaches release. As this had started to get talked about, you know, on Forbes and MSNBC and Legal Eagle, who's a YouTube lawyer with a big following, had done a video on it, it was becoming more and more and more mainstream. And the last thing you want is when you, you have Chris Pine going out and talking about how much fun it was to be a bard. last thing you want is for someone to say, and what do you think of the fact that they're trying to pull the rug out from thousands of, of excited, impressionable young people who are trying to create their own games and, and were promised they could and now they couldn't? You, you don't want that to be part of the conversation. That's certainly possible. It's also possible that they simply want to legitimately be a culpa and make up for it, and they think that this is, is the closest thing to an apology they have. It's possible that they plan now, even though they originally said that 1D&D would be compatible with, with 5th edition, maybe looking in a different direction now. So they are dumping this so that everyone will pay attention to this, so that when they do a non-compatible 1D&D or 6th edition, everyone will have been distracted and not notice whatever they've said about it, and they will be able to keep that closed as of releasing it into the Creative Commons or the Open Gaming License. I'm not sure exactly what their end goal is here, 
I kind of don't care because, yes, there's a limit to how much you want to praise someone for putting out a fire in a house if they're the one that set it. On the other hand, if you're standing around and someone has set fire to a house, you'd rather they put it out than not put it out. So I, I want to give credit where credit is due that they, they could have dragged this out for another week. The additional uncertainty would have come. I'm aware of projects that have gotten canceled because of the uncertainty about this OGL issue. Uh, they did not double down. They did not hold out to the end. They did not dare people to get sued. They just decided, at least for the moment, to not do it. And for where we were just before that decision, I think that's a, the right decision and, and worthy of thanks and praise. Also would like to say, I've been following you on Facebook through all this, and I really like the way your statements have been, how do I want to say this, pointing out the problems with what Wizards was doing, but also kind of remembering and reminding people to remember that, you know, the creative team at Wizards weren't the ones who did this, <laughs> you know, and the... There's Not just the creative people, the, the, the poor people that have to answer the surveys and the customer service and the, the people in the mailroom, none of them made this decision. And I know a lot of people that work at Wizards of the Coast. I know some of them who have worked there, like, you know, James Wyatt and Chris Perkins, who were working there back when I was in 2000, 2001. Chris Perkins was my boss for a while. Those are good people. Those are good, smart people who care about the game and care about gamers and want to make the most fun experience for everyone. They are not the president and vice president of the company. A number of other people I know uh, are in various departments, Magic Gathering and Editing and, and, and the, the RPG department. Several of them have been for years. And th those are not only, you know, fine, fun, intelligent, creative, caring human beings, but when you call for boycott of D&D Beyond who are calling for their brand of a huge budget cut. That potentially harms them. Now, is that a legitimate use of, of people's money to, to vote with their wallet? I think absolutely it is. But I think it's important to remember there can be consequences for real people who haven't done anything wrong. And I, I found myself this is a very personal issue for me. Uh, and I got a little vitriolic in some of my blog posts and uh, got called out for it and had to sit down and reconsider and an addendum on the worst of those blog posts saying, hey, 12 hours later, I'm not taking any of this down. I, I said it. I stand by it. But I may have turned up the temperature too much and I need to take a break and think about that. So there was a when this first started, I was I was doing a show or discussion of some kind like every day or every other day. Uh, and I just between that and and a bacterial infection, uh, I had to take some time off, and about the time I was looking at coming back at it, it stopped. So, in many ways, I'm I'm glad about that. But yeah, I, I think it's important we not forget the human element, and we not cast anger and invective where it does not belong. I think that's very well said. you have any other thoughts on this? I know this has been a little bit more of you kind of giving us a lecture and less Q&A that we had originally intended, but I think you were just kind of hitting the point. So as long, as long as you guys think you're getting good copy, I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> I, as I said, I have, I've gone over this a few times in the past few weeks. So a lot of it is fresh <laughs> in my head for most people listening. Uh, I hope the main takeaway is this. There are a lot of people making a lot of cool games. If you enjoy any of them, feel free to play and enjoy them. If you feel you've got to move away from a company for any reason, that's, that's your call. If you want to create games, 
there are lots of opportunities and starter kits and venues to do that now. So one hope is that no one gets scared away from becoming a game creator forever because they were thinking of doing it on January 3rd of 2023 and then it looked like the, the game publishing world blew up. Six months from now, my guess is that this will be one of those things that people talk about, hey, remember when? And I'm not interested in trying to get my pound of flesh for anything. I just want people to be able to make and play and enjoy games. Cool. Well, I think with all that, you've been nice enough to give us a lot of information here. So uh, I think it's only fair to give you some time to plug anything you would like to, really. I know you you mentioned, you know, you have rogue genius games and assorted other projects many irons in the fire as it were i do so uh i've got a blog ONKCStevens.com. uh i post up there currently three times a week on average uh i post another two times a week exclusively to my patreon uh which is patreon.com forward slash ONKCStevens. uh and that's a lot of in content for Finder and Starfinder and Pathfinder 2nd Edition and 5e and uh, also sometimes Industry Insider essays and random thought experiments and cool ideas I have and, and listicles and top 10 signs, you're the chosen one. And that Patreon uh, supports the blog. So that is a, a great way to be getting content directly from me uh, and to help directly support me doing it. We also run Rogue Genius Games. Uh, the easiest way to get a hold of Rogue Genius Games is to go to DriveThruRPG and just do a search for Rogue Genius Games. Uh, we've been putting out a lot of new content, uh, five PDFs a week uh, so far this month, uh, for, again, Pathfinder 1st and 2nd Edition, Starfinder 5e, and Mutants and Masterminds. And we've got, I don't know, 1,500 products uh, from the the decade-and-a-half-old Dragon Rider to path, for Pathfinder uh, to Gingerbread Kaiju, uh, the game of edible giant monsters. So that's worth looking at. And then you can always find me uh, on Twitter, which is twitter.com Owen underscore Stevens, or Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Stevens. And, you know, finding me on any of those places, I, I will keep people updated on what I'm doing and what's going on and what new products are out and what my new thoughts are and what my new blog post is. So those are the the main ways to get a hold of and interact with me. Okay. Do you have something to add there, Steve, or are you just playing with the microphone? I'm just playing with the microphone. <laughs> okay. I just figured I'd check. Yeah. I think with all that, it's time for Game of the Week. Woohoo! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! Game of the Week! All right. So, uh, as I mentioned to you before, Owen, this is a little thing we do where we just pick some sort of game that maybe we played a long time ago, thought was cool. Maybe we just found a listing on DriveThru or Itch or somewhere and think it looks neat but just a a way to expose more people to the games we think are cool so if you'd like one of us can go first so you kind of get a feel of how we do it and you can slide in wherever you feel free to comment etc as we're talking about ours and Perfect. all that. I'm all ears let me have done all right you want to go first steve or you want me to i can go first i have right. um i have a pay what you want supplement of sorts Um, it's a game called super suplex. So it is a wrestling game, but the wrestlers are superhuman. (laughs) Okay. And I imagine this getting like insane and a ton of fun. 
but it runs off the re-roller system, which is, I guess, a free index card size system. I've never really heard of it. But yeah, it's, it is um, just a neat little pay-what-you-want wrestling meets superheroes game that is something that I'm sort of down for. That does sound fun. Just for a night of craziness. Yeah. It, insane, bonkers fun. <laughs> which is something I think we need after all this levity. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So super suplex. Yep. And then again, just so everyone knows, we link all these every episode in the show notes. So you can go find them easily. Just scroll down and click and all that fun stuff. So uh, would you like to go next, sir? Or would you like me to do mine? I will go ahead and go next. Uh, and I'm going to cheat a little bit because that's, you know, what, what guests do. Um, <laughs> I specifically want to call out Fantasy Age. That's the adventure game engine. Uh, Fantasy Age is published by Green Ronin. Fantasy Age is the engine that they used for the Dragon Age tabletop role-playing game. It's the same engine that they used for the Expanse and uh, Modern Age RPGs and uh, the same basic engine as Cthulhu Awakens, which will be coming out. And for that matter, uh, they've got a fifth season Kickstarter going right now, and I don't I don't currently work for Green Ronin, so they are all friends of mine, but I'm not actually promoting anyone that I currently work with or work on. And Fantasy Age, uh, I was the Fantasy Age developer for two and a half, three years, uh, working on the next edition of Fantasy Age, which the PDF will be out soon and print later this year. What I love about Fantasy Age is that it has a thing called a stunt mechanic. So you you roll three six-sided dice, and if any two of them are doubles, you get stunt points. And then spend stunt points on special maneuvers or getting lucky or pitch something to your, your GM. Hey, can I burn stunt points to, to throw my axe at someone to trip them at range, which is a famous thing that happened in one of the actual games during the playtesting. It means that a game, although still very simple, produces really variable results so you don't have static combat. One of the things that can happen, especially with experienced players, that you can get really used to what is the absolute most effective thing my character can do in any given situation. And you just spam that response over and over and over, which can be effective, but isn't necessarily fun. The variable number of stunt points, which show up, not every roll, but, you know, like one in five successful rolls, something like that, and can be between one and six stunt points, means that sometimes there's a little extra something that you can do, and sometimes there's a lot of extra something you can do, and sometimes you desperately wish there was something extra you can do, so you will attempt a stunt maneuver. The basic rule book is available right now. Uh, it's a, a smaller book that I frequently promote to people, right? This is not a 500-page RPG. And the new edition is mostly compatible. Uh, it would be easy to hop from one to the other and will be out soon. And I think there's a lot of people who would enjoy the good enough engine for doing a wide range of things while really enjoying the things it does super well, which is to throw a surprise ringer into combat and social interactions and exploration because those all have stunts. I was going to say, it's actually the, uh, the current edition is loaded up on my tablet. I'm reading it as we speak and well, not as we speak, but you know, it's in my tablet. But before and after this, yeah. <laughs> um, and we actually did a, a, an episode a while back with someone who's, who's now, I think, heavily involved in the uh, Age Creators Alliance about the system. Cool. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's something, it's on my radar personally. And, uh, yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think they'd announced PDF and pre-orders will be available in February, which is when this will air. Right. And, you know, pre-order for the, the prints of the new edition 
I thought the number I saw was they're calling it 90% compatible with first edition. Yeah. I mean, it, it compatible is a weird description. Sometimes you, you could, I'm pretty sure take a fantasy age, basic rulebook character and play them in a, a second edition fantasy age game. You just would lack some options. Other people have can't take them all anyway. <laughs> True. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm I'm going, uh, and I don't think I've used this before, but I'm going to highlight a, a game that's um well, it's built off a board game, and that would be the Root RPG, or as it's technically called, Root, the role playing game, put out by Magpie Games, is based on the uh, rather popular Root board game, where you play uh, little woodland critters who band together to well defend themselves from cats and all sorts of things like that. Like I said, this is very much. Uh, you know, it's officially licensed based on the root, a game of woodland might and right. You know, it's powered by the apocalypse based, so very narrative heavy. So, you know, nine playbooks, three to six players, two to four hour sessions. And I believe there are actually a number of small expansions and so forth for this, along with looks like several quick starts, if anyone's wanting to just kind of take a peek at it. But uh, yeah, it's from Magpie Games. So, yeah, Root the Role-Playing Game is going to be my pick this week. Yeah. And with all that being said, we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you all working with me on my schedule for this. Oh, <laughs> no worries. And, and hopefully we can have you back in the future to talk uh, uh, maybe something a little less serious. <laughs> <laughs> something a little less terrifying, I should yes. say. <laughs> that sounds great to me. I will say I'm mildly disappointed that we have not had a cameo appearance by the cat of the really long name, which I will not attempt. You mean Alphonse Lord Tubbington of Sausage on Chonk, Order of the Big Biter, Scion of House Fuffelstein on his mother's side? Um, He frequently makes an appearance, but it's very much more winter here today than it was yesterday. (laughs) He is curled up someplace warm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, like, like Steve said, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk with us and, and just, you know, give some perspective as to what all this controversy and excitement and whatever, because I think for some people they're going, why are people so worked up? Well, you have the perspective of having spent a lot of time. I mean, is it fair to say that the large part of your career has been, so to speak, dependent on the OGL Uh, or a large part, at least a, a large part. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I just thought you would have, you know, a, a different, different perspective on it than many. And I didn't really want to try to come at it from a legal side because like you said, it, so much is dependent on what gets decided in a specific court case. And absolutely that only is known when it happens, but uh, thank you for giving us a, a kind of a history lesson, but in a very enjoyable manner. <laughs> Glad I was able to help. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thank you. And, and as always, links to everything are in the show notes. And with all that being said, we'll remind everyone to get out there and play some RPGs and be kind to one another. Take care, y'all. Thanks. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at andrpgs. Find us on Facebook at meandsteverpgpodcast. On Discord at meandsteverpgs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you, and be kind to one another.
much for the cigar. Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You got to go down the street to the store and buy that.